Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, and welcome to Grid Talk. We're here today with Bill Magnus, the president and CEO of ERCOT, um, which uh, governs Texas and oversees its electric reliability and the operation of the grid and a whole bunch of stuff that we're going to get into today. Um, he's been with ERCOT for 10 years, as first as its general counsel, and then uh, in 2016 became its CEO and president. Good morning, Bill. How are you? I'm well. Thank you, Marty. Glad to be here. Well, I, I really want to start with what I think is a headline story that probably has gone underappreciated, and that's the importance of wind power in Texas. Um, you're coming up on a, a milestone the end of this year uh, where you will have 30,000 megawatts of wind capacity installed. And I did some quick back-of-the-envelope checking to give people an idea. We hear these numbers. We, we kind of gloss over them and don't appreciate the significance. Denmark fashions itself as, as a leader in wind power. Uh, if you fly into Copenhagen Airport, you'll see all these neat um, wind turbines spinning out in the harbor. If you drive across the countryside, you'll see multiple generations of wind turbines that are deployed that for going back decades. Well, Den- Denmark has one quarter of the population of Texas, and uh, as of the end of this month, its total installed wind capacity will stand at 5,500 megawatts. Texas will have five times that amount. And uh, Bill, I'm not sure if you've done the math yet comparing Texas with China. I just did that this morning. China, of course, is huge with 60 times the population of Texas with over one point, close to 1.4 billion people. It leads the world in wind deployment with 221,000 megawatts of capacity. But while Texas has 1 60th of the wind deployed in, in China, which, by the way, the Chinese total is one third of the total world capacity, Texas has 1 7th, will have 1 7th of, of the installed wind capacity of China. 1 60th of the population and 1 7th of the wind. How do you integrate all that wind power? And maybe you could tell us the story of how we got there. Sure, Marty. Yeah, it's, it's a big part of the story of ERCOT over the last really decade and more. And on the how we got there part, uh, I think, you know, the, the essential thing is, and this is true with solar as well, um, you have to have the wind. Uh, and Texas has enormous wind resources. I think we first uh, began to build them out in uh, West Texas, in the Texas Panhandle. And uh, anybody who grew up in the Panhandle and in those areas knows it's windy just about all the time. Uh, So with the new technologies for wind uh, generation, uh, those were ideal sites from a physical perspective. In addition, as uh, technology improved, we were able to take advantage of a lot of wind on the Texas coast. So there are more and more projects uh, that have been uh, built on the coast. 
And the wind there has very different characteristics from the wind in the West that sort of blows at different times. Um, so that's been something we've needed to learn about. And really having that natural resource base, sort of the next essential piece of the growth of wind in Texas was uh, building transmission out to those areas. Uh, most of those areas where there's the most wind, particularly in the panhandle of West Texas, were not you know, high population areas. Uh, so the Texas legislature committed to a very large build out of transmission uh, to take advantage of that resource base and uh, bring it into the population centers. So that competitive renewable energy zones project, uh, which got going, gosh, I guess the legislation was around 10 years ago. Uh, those projects were completed in the 2013-2014 timeframe. Um, you know, really unlock uh, the the wind capacity that was available in those areas to bring it in and, you know, generate it into power. Uh, in addition, the obviously the federal production tax credit uh, has had a lot to do with the deployment and development of wind all over the U.S. That's been a big factor in the projects here. And then in addition, our market, our energy-only market, uh, enables uh, resources that have least cost, uh, to run most of the time in a you know economically efficient way, and I think that's been a benefit to uh, the deployment of those new resources as well. So that's kind of the, the history. Let's focus on the market for a second. Um, the uh, Texas market deregulated in 1999 under then Governor Bush, where he deregulated the power markets. So you w- quickly went from 160 megawatts of wind in 2000, uh, marched up, magnified that close to 200-fold to get to 30,000 megawatts. How instrumental has the market been in that, in your opinion? I think our market uh, is instrumental in most everything that happens in ERCOT. Uh, It is a market that, you know, has low barriers to entry. Um, I think the legislature, when it restructured the electric markets, wanted competition, wanted new entry. Uh, and this is true in retail, it's true in generation. Uh, so the ability to folks to get in and get built and get going uh, was very important. And then I think this commitment to uh, building out, extending the transmission system uh, to these places where the resources are was also pretty critical. I think in, in a lot of places that have similar wind or solar resources, that don't have as much of a commitment to getting the transmission built out to them. Uh, I think you see, you know, less uh, development than you've seen in ERCOT. So I, I think that the market and the way it was restructured had a whole lot to do with uh, what we ended up seeing. So let's focus for a second uh, on, or more than a second, actually, is kind of fascinating on reliability. You had a peak demand uh, a year ago at seventy, close to seventy-five thousand megawatts. This installed base of wind, which of course is an intermittent resource, uh, is going to be a sizable hunk of that total, uh, 30,000 versus 75,000. You've been operating at fairly low margins over the last two summers. How do you manage to have a more um, intermittent resource base and work on slimmer margins and keep the whole thing moving forward in a healthy fashion? Well, the the first thing I'd say is understanding the resource and how it operates and when it operates has been critical. And, you know, you can sort of put that under the heading of wind wind forecasting. 
you know, in the old days, you basically had to forecast load, right? You wanted to know when, when the load was going to show up that you had to serve. So you looked at the economics and you looked at the weather and you put together your models and figured out what load was going to look like. Uh, on a traditional system, you don't forecast generation. Uh, you know, to put it very bluntly, you turn it on and turn it off uh, and, uh, you know, manage outages. And so we had to get educated about uh, when, when and where the wind blows and make our best forecast for when those resources would be there. And those, those resources work at different times in different parts of the state. For example, uh, we calculate a, an estimated load carrying capacity uh, for our wind resources so that when we, for example, do a summer peak load forecast, we're counting what we can realistically expect from those resources, not what their nameplate capacity is. Uh, and that's been done by a process of observation and study uh, and modeling through the years that we've been managing a lot of wind on the system. So, you know, each day that goes by, we're learning more and more and accumulating that data uh, in our models uh, about how the wind's going to blow. So when we forecast on a, say, the peak summer day, um, we have very different expectations for the wind resources in different parts of the state. Uh, for example, the West Texas wind we would estimate somewhere, and I don't have the exact numbers at hand, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 15% of nameplate is what I'm going to expect at peak from those resources. On the other side of the state, the coastal wind over peak on, a, on the you know, hottest summer day, I'm expecting over 50% of the nameplate of those resources. Uh, and of course, that hall has to be mixed in with, you know, what is the weather on that particular day? Uh, so it's a, a process of, of trying to understand the resources in a more granular way uh, and make your plans based on, you know, that reality. Uh, as solar grows, utility-scale solar continues to grow in ERCOT, we're doing the same thing. We've been doing solar forecasting uh, because, you know, cloud cover, uh, the, the way the sun shines in different parts of Texas, things like that, just as we've learned with the wind, uh, we're going to be learning the details of the dynamics of solar. So that forecasting part and getting a, a, a much greater depth of understanding of the resource that you have has been critical. In addition, we needed to write our market rules, our grid code in such a way that we require certain things from these resources, you know, like frequency response, like voltage ride through that sort of set the groundwork for what those resources need to bring to the grid to help us manage reliability. Um, we've changed our ancillary services week to uh, enable us to have better products available for things like fast ramps up or down, which is a feature of wind uh, and really inter any inter intermittent resource where you can see a lot on the system and also all of a sudden very little on the system, depending on, again, like cloud cover with solar. Um, we have conducted a lot more risk assessments uh, than we did in the past. For example, in our control room, we established what we call a reliability risk desk. Uh, which is a person who's dedicated to running studies forward, looking at different scenarios that may occur, often focused on uh, the dynamics of the wind and the solar on the system and what we can expect uh, during any given hour or day. And then in addition, I think the way our real-time market works, the five-minute intervals on which we send out dispatch instructions, that speed uh, helps us provide some certainty uh, in knowing where we are and uh, managing it on a you know, very close-in-time basis. So all that said, uh, it, it's affected most every part of our planning and our operations uh, to try to manage these different sorts of resources uh, because they do behave really differently on the system. 
One of, one of the uh, assumptions uh, is that with a greater reliance on inter- intermittent renewables, more energy storage is needed. But if I read the data correctly, you only had about 125 megawatts of battery storage in ERCOT at the beginning of this year. Is that correct? Are you planning more energy storage, and how do you get by without it? Well, there's a lot more in the queue. Uh, we're expecting, let's see, we're tr- currently tracking, when we look at our, our generation interconnection requests, we're tracking over 19,000 megawatts of battery projects. Now, those may be early stages, those may not get built, but you're seeing a lot of interest um, in batteries in the ERCOT market. And that may be paired up with solar farms, for example, that might be on the distribution side where we're seeing you know, an increasing amount of uh, distributed energy resources and distribution generation resources. So there's a, a lot of interest and it's an area where we're uh, spending a lot of time with our stakeholders to develop the market rules, again, to kind of go through this process like we did with wind and solar of getting the market rules right, understanding the operational characteristics and figuring out you know, how we're going to manage this new resource on the system. Uh, so we see that uh, growing in the near future. Let's bring solar into the conversation. You're headed from three to 5,000 uh, megawatts of solar by the end of this year. Um, you're also planning to continue growth of uh, wind resources, projecting it to, to grow to close to 40,000 megawatts in 2023. That's close to a 30% rise from where you're at now. How do you, do you see solar gaining at about the rate? Uh, do you think it, it'll grow to be much more significant in the mix? How And how do you see both of them playing in the ERCOT market in the next decade? Well, I, I'm going to... Uh... Uh, pause for just a second on a, on a terminology matter. Um, when you say we're planning on it, um, ERCOT doesn't plan uh, <laughs> in the sense of like an integrated resource plan. When we report the generation that we're expecting, uh, that's a reflection of what the generation developers are telling us they're bringing to the table. I stand corrected. Well, I think, I mean, it, it just makes a difference from the perspective of, you know, having an integrated resource plan is a very different dynamic uh, for operating the grid than seeing what the market brings and, you know, managing that. Uh, now, based on what developers are telling us what, and what the market's telling them, apparently, we're seeing a, a lot more solar. Um, again, you know, when we look at that generation interconnection request, there's like 80,000 megawatts of solar. That is at least a twinkle in someone's eye, you know, whether they'll get built or not. Uh, so, yes, there, there's a whole lot of interest in utility-scale solar. And, and it's not just in... Far West Texas, where a lot of the, the large solar developments have occurred so far, it's starting to be in different parts of, of Texas. Um, so we're really starting to see that propagate um, in a lot of different parts of the state. And, and I think, the like wind, there seems to just be continuing decreases in costs of the technology that supports utility-scale solar. And I think that in a market like ours, I think that certainly drives the continued interest uh, because if it's going to be the least cost provider, it's going to run an ERCOT. Uh, and, and that's why a big reason why I think you continue to see uh, increasing interest in it. So, so you operate quite a sizable uh, grid, 46,500 miles of transmission. Uh, to give a picture of that, that's 16 
trips between San Francisco and New York. It's quite a, a lot. Uh, what are your plans for changing that, evolving the technology? What kind of capital investment do you need to make, given the expectations that you just outlined of solar and wind growing in coming years? Well, there continues to be a significant transmission investment uh, ongoing in ERCOT. Uh, kind of put it in perspective, that competitive renewable energy zones program that I, I mentioned earlier, I think one of the largest build-outs of transmission we've probably ever seen, at least in the U.S., certainly in the time period in which it was completed, an amazing project. Um, that The overall cost of that was in the neighborhood of $7 billion. And in 2020, we energized you know, over a billion dollars worth of new transmission projects. In 2020, our board endorses, if a transmission project is large enough, it needs an endorsement from the ERCOT board. Uh, we've endorsed over $900 million of new transmission projects. And if you add up all of the transmission that's in engineering, routing, licensing, construction, sort of in process, it's over $7 billion. So we're continuing to build, you know, additions to the transmission system that rival the really large build out we had you know, in the mid-2010s with CREDS. And that's driven not just by the new resources. I mean, it's driven primarily by load growth. Uh, load growth in West Texas, where oil and gas development has, you know, taken off in a big way over the last few years. Load growth in the Houston and uh, the industrial areas surrounding Houston on the east side of Texas, where you've seen you know, petrochemical renaissance and uh, other industrial developments. And then just the overall continued growth, particularly on the industrial and commercial side of the state of Texas. Uh, so that's driven a whole lot of this continued uh, investment in transmission. Uh, and so we, we continue to see that. I mean, transmission is not the only solution. Uh, it's not the only thing we have to, you know, to manage and continue to grow on the grid. Obviously, you need know, resources coming in and providing power. Uh, but with the continued load growth we're seeing, um, you're seeing investments in all those areas. So this um, service territory uh, that you serve uh, represents quite an island in, in the middle of the North American grid. Uh, it's been independent. Do you see that remaining the case? Or are there going to be challenges and changes that will affect ERCOT's independence? Should there be? Should you be integrated more with the North American grid? Um, no one who's in charge of what I do is in favor of of losing our independence. I think the, the market participants in ERCOT, the state government in Texas has very favorably viewed uh, what we accomplished with the independence of ERCOT. And, you know, we continue to meet the needs of a, a growing state. So uh, I don't see any impetus um, uh, from Texas to change that arrangement. Or, or to put it in a, in a different uh, context, having a large market with a lot of generation resources and independence kind of makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Uh, it, it has so far. Yes, I, I think it has. And I think, uh, well, and you look at things like the competitive renewable energy zones project, you know, that was something the Texas legislature looked at as a policy matter and approved that kind of thing could not have, would not have been done if there had not been policy direction from our legislature and then, you know, implemented by our public utility commission to make it happen. Uh, so I think there's a they may be unity of purpose with our legislature and our public utility commission about you know, how we ought to be 
operating this market. And it, I think it allows us to move somewhat nimbly uh, and quickly once we get that direction. Uh, and there's the um, uh, desire by a whole lot of people here to you know, support that growth that continues to make our economy thrive. You've been um, interfacing with the regulatory system that manages electricity in this country for, for in a variety of capacities. You've uh, been in the Office of Consumer Protection in, in Texas in the late 90s. As an attorney, you've appeared before 16 state commissions, uh, utility commissions. Given that background and given the hands-on experience you've had at ERCOT, what kind of lessons can the rest of the country extrapolate in terms of what's possible, given where uh, technology is headed, given where public appetite for renewables is increasing? What kind of lessons do you think folks outside uh, Texas can learn, and what do regulators need to learn? Uh, well, I'll say a couple things, and, and, and not to say that people haven't learned them, because I think these things go on in other markets and in other regions of the country, but the, the, the couple of things I'd say have been really important are, one is the stakeholder process that we have, um, and making sure that there's a seat at the table for everybody who has a stake in what's going on. Uh, in the ERCOP market, you know, we have a board that's made up of uh, independent board members, but also includes representatives of you know, transmission companies, generation companies, power marketers, consumers, co-ops, municipal utilities, much everybody who has a stake is represented. Uh, and that drives better decisions. Um, and the relationship between those stakeholder processes and the review by our public utility commission kind of kind of puts us all in the same boat where we can, you know, keep heading in the same direction. But I think if you don't have that participation by the consumer and the producer side of the business, uh, you can hit snags. Um, the second thing is, you know, being clear about what it is you want out of your electric system. And I think this is where some of my counterparts in other parts of the country have challenges is, you know, in the ERCOT market, the market was restructured and uh, our objective is to provide reliable, least cost power to the citizens of Texas and, and in 75% of the state in a competitive retail market. That's been the central driving force behind what we do. And we've made adjustments to our market rules in order to achieve that as we've gone through and, you know, learn new things. It's challenging when, you know, if I had that objective, but I also had an objective to develop certain kinds of generation, or I had an objective to achieve other policy objectives, if those begin to conflict, you're going to have a problem. Uh, and obviously those problems get worked out in policy forums and Congress, legislature, FERC, elsewhere. Uh, but again, that sort of unity of purpose and a clear understanding of, you know, what it is we're doing here and what it's for uh, is pretty critical from a policy perspective. And I think that's something I've been very benefited by in my time at ERCOT is we've had that unity of purpose with the legislature, the commission, ERCOT, the stakeholders. So uh, even though there's lots of disagreements and lots of, you know, pushes and pulls, we're mainly pushing in the same direction. So so let's take that um that mindset and that frame of thinking of things to one topic we visited earlier, that that you've achieved fairly low reserve margins in 2018 and 2019 and still managed your summer peak. 
Um, if that, if the, the policies and the technologies and, and the management skills that achieve that could be extrapolated around the country, wouldn't that represent potentially enormous savings for companies and customers? Well, the, the way our market is structured, and I, you know, I'm not saying our market's for everybody, but the way our market's structured, when you come into the summer, the peak season in ERCOT, uh, you have very, very strong economic incentives to make sure your generation units are running. Uh, you have strong economic incentives to make sure that transmission lines are functioning uh, because the consequences of you know, being caught out uh, on a bad day can be very severe. So having a market structure that can have very uh, bracing outcomes, <laughs> uh, but also very profitable outcomes, uh, for those who were there and, you know, providing service on those times when we have scarcity pricing and prices go quite high, uh, you know, that can be a really good day. Um, so, you know, the incentives are economic, but they're very strong and they're pointing in the direction of reliable service and they're pointing in the direction of, of making sure that your equipment's running and, and doing what it's being asked by the, by the overall system. So I think it does encourage, um, behavior, business activities, investments that support reliability, um, even though they're, they're market incentives. Uh, so again, there's, you know, different people have different objectives and uh, different needs, but it's something that as we have gone through ups and downs in our reserve margins, and we've seen, you know, fluctuations over the 20 some years now that we've been doing the restructured market, they go up, they go down, and it's based on business cycles of investment and retirement. And, you know, in, in 2017, when plants retired, we knew that the summer of 2018 would be tight. 2018 and 2019 were tight and there were good economic returns. And we've seen a lot of uh, desire to invest in the market and we're going to see higher reserve margins going into the summer of 2021. There's no promise they'll stay there. They'll probably go up and down, but that's why all those things I mentioned earlier about how we manage intermittency, how we manage renewables, all those tools that we have to have in place to manage a changing and dynamic system, that's why we have to do those things because we're not in a steady state. That's not how this market works. Well, it's, it's been a fascinating conversation. Do you have any uh, concluding thoughts you'd like to leave with us, Bill? I'm not sure that I do. I appreciate your interest. It, it is something I think we're, we're very proud of that we've seen the kind of success in the ERCOT market uh, that we have. And uh, going through a year like 2020, when there's been so much dislocation and difficulty, seeing that the structures we have in place, whether it's in our stakeholder process or it's in the you know the day-to-day -day work of linemen and grid operators and everybody who's got to get the job done, it's been very gratifying to see that, that sort of public spirit of this work is maintained and flourished throughout all this. So from that perspective, as rough as 2020 has been, it's been a good year to see we still have that spirit in this business and that we've been able to pull together and make it work for everybody because this all would have been quite a bit worse uh, if there had not been reliable electricity. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Grid Talk. Thanks to our guest, Bill Magnus, the president and CEO of ERCOT in Texas, for sharing his insights about changes in his market and the industry at large. You have been listening to Grid Talk. Please send us feedback or questions to gridtalk at nrel.gov. 
And we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. For more information about the series or to subscribe, visit smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.